from KQED. California has always had wildfires. Like earthquakes or drought, they're part of living in this state. Attention, Sonoma County residents, there is a large fire off Mark West Springs Road. There are several homes engulfed in flames. Lightning starts some of our wildfires, and careless people start others. But over the last several years, a lot of fires have been started by Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, our power company. Tell me again what happened. Well, it looked like it was a big firework that went off, but it looks, I'm pretty sure it's a transformer. In just two and a half years, the utility's equipment started more than 1,500 fires, a Wall Street Journal investigation found. Some of those were small, but others were deadly, like the campfire, which burned the town of Paradise to the ground in 2018 and killed 85 people. To prevent wildfires, PG&E has started shutting off the power during dry and windy weather. That's when a downed power line or electrical spark is most likely to start a blaze. Now, those power shutoffs appear to have prevented fires, but the practice has also stranded people without power for days, which poses its own health and safety risks. I am a survivor of the recent disastrously conceived and implemented shutdown by PG&E, and I am an angry survivor. Bay Curious listener Sally Swope has been watching the news, and she thought to herself, there must be a better way. I want to know why PG&E doesn't bury their lines. Today on the show, what will it take to both prevent wildfires and keep the power on? I'm Olivia Allen Price, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Founded in 1980, it's still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And still the pale ale that sparked a craft beer revolution. Sierra Nevada, still the one. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of people like the idea of burying the power lines. It would certainly look nicer, and it seems like an obvious way to prevent wildfires. But is it the best way? Bay Curious producer Katrina Schwartz went to find out. When you ask electrical grid experts about burying the power lines, the first thing they point out is how huge the PG&E system really is. 
There's hardly anything like PG&E's service territory anywhere in the United States. This is Steve Weissman. He used to be an administrative law judge at the California Public Utilities Commission, so he knows the system inside and out. Now he teaches public policy to the next generation at UC Berkeley. It covers 16 different climate zones. It's in the snowy mountains and the hot deserts and the coastline. PG&E provides power to around 5.1 million households in central and northern California. Their service area is massive, 70,000 square miles. That's about the size of the entire state of Oklahoma. UC Berkeley electrical engineering professor Sasha von Meyer says there are downsides to putting the lines underground that a lot of people don't think about. You have um, kind of a trade-off to look at, which is when power lines are underground, if and when something does go wrong, it's a lot harder to find where the problem is and to go fix it. Uh, So that then takes longer and costs more to do. Von Meyer actually lives close to where the deadly Oakland Hills fire devastated homes in 1991. So we're here just at the edge of Broadway Terrace, and up along that ridge was the line uh, of defense against the fires. Everything on one side of Broadway Terrace burned down. After the fire, homeowners pressured PG&E to put the power lines there underground. Where they had to basically rebuild the distribution infrastructure anyway. And so they were going to spend a lot of money anyway. And realizing that this was a particularly hazardous fire uh, area, it was put underground. PG&E is applying the same logic as the town of Paradise rebuilds following the deadly campfire. There, they've committed to putting 200 miles of distribution lines underground in and around the town. Undergrounding all of PG&E's lines would be a terrifically expensive task. The difficulty is always, well, how much can we afford to pay and who's going to pay for it? How do we spread those costs around, uh, you know, among the ratepayers? And, uh, you know, that's really kind of the prickly question. Anything PG&E does to make its system safer is going to cost money. And even though undergrounding is one of the most expensive options... It's a lot cheaper than a catastrophic wildfire. Meet Nathaniel Skinner, safety expert at the CPUC Public Advocate's Office. They fight for the rights of ratepayers, us. I did a rough back-of-the-napkin calculation on this. PG&E estimates it costs about $3 million per mile to put a line underground. So the 200 miles around Paradise will cost about $460 million. That's a hefty price tag. But it's still a bargain when you realize the campfire caused about $16.5 billion in damages. Steve Weissman, the UC Berkeley public policy professor, says the costs associated with potential fires should be considered as part of PG&E's long-term decision-making. Without having the real cost included in the calculation, you're not likely to be making the most uh, well-informed decision. Skinner agrees that sometimes undergrounding is the right choice, like in Paradise, where there's only one road out of town. But he doesn't think it's the best deal for ratepayers to put the lines underground everywhere. It quickly becomes prohibitively expensive. People are paying a lot for their electricity service right now. There's a lot of people who can't afford the utility bills. Um, At what point does electricity service become unaffordable? And that starts to introduce all sorts of health and safety impacts. Skinner says even the lowest estimates for putting the most fire-prone sections of PG&E's system underground would mean the average person's electric bill could go up eightfold. 
There are cheaper things PG&E can do right now that would make the system safer, he says. A big one is installing covered conducting wire, so if a tree branch falls on the line during a windstorm, it doesn't spark a fire. Another is keeping trees cut back from the wires. Those are all strategies utility companies already have at their disposal. Sasha von Meyer, meanwhile, is looking to the future. Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse would totally recognize every piece of equipment that's visible here. A lot of this isn't even 20th century technology. It's kind of 19th century. Uh, Very analog, very simple in terms of the individual pieces of it. But then when you put it together as a system, it's really complex. Von Meyer sees promise in what are called synchrophasers small sensors along the lines that give the utility more precise data about big and small disruptions in the system. Being able to control the components is, I think, what most people mean when they say a smart grid. A smarter grid would sense if a power line breaks, for example, and cut off power before the line hits the dry ground. And the utility would have a lot more information about how often and in what situations there are power disturbances. That all sounds cool, but these new technologies also require high-speed communication systems, and none of it is cheap. Von Meyer estimates a few thousand dollars per sensor and millions for a communication system that supports them. PG&E says they've tested similar technology in Napa Valley and found it useful for detecting equipment that needs replacing. It sounds like there are a lot of things that PG&E could be doing besides putting wires underground that would make the system less likely to start a wildfire. But it seems like that work is always going really slowly. And that points to the heart of Sally Swope's question. This fundamental frustration many PG&E customers have that the utility doesn't invest enough in safety. It's like, how many huge catastrophic events have to happen? Why is it this company over and over again? It's hard to know exactly why but you can observe a couple of things. Steve Weissman says the history of PG&E as a company might hold some clues. PG&E's history goes back about 140 years at this point. Back then, electrical energy was a very local service. You'd have a small generator and a few poles and wires going to a building. So that was the beginning of electric service, and it happened with all these small companies. Weissman says as technology changed, companies realized it was more efficient to team up. It became the norm for big power plants to be located far away from residential areas and brought in on long transmission lines. So basically, over time and through a bunch of consolidation, PG&E emerged as the power company for much of central and northern California. It's something that grew kind of organically over the course of decades. Weissman says this origin story is important because in many ways, PG&E's growth wasn't a carefully designed and well-thought-out plan. As a result of that, this is a company that really never got to a point where it sat back and asked itself, have we become too big for our current uh, form of management? Uh, To ask a lot of self-reflective questions about the most useful way to make sure the service is safe, that it's environmentally sensitive, that it's reliable, and that it's cheap. That lack of foresight may help explain why PG&E has had such a bad track record when it comes to safety. The California Public Utilities Commission, which regulates the state's utilities, has found over and over again that PG&E does not keep good records of its equipment and inspections. 
and without accurate records, they're less likely to identify safety risks. When one of PG&E's gas pipelines exploded in San Bruno in 2010, it killed eight people and destroyed 38 homes. There was a visible crack in a line, something PG&E quality control failed to find. Same story with the campfire that destroyed Paradise and killed 85 people. Old and poorly maintained PG&E equipment was at fault. This is a company that has not had an instinct to put safeguards in place, to put in quality assurance programs and other kinds of oversight programs to make sure people are looking for problems and trying to identify them uh, and overcome them early on through the process. For most of its history, PG&E has had very little competition. Company policy has been to run the utility as cheaply as possible and use earnings to expand into new types of businesses or pay shareholders. But what never seemed to change was the sense that PG&E was a publicly traded competitive company first and a a regulated utility second. And I think that's part of the, the psychological trap that's made it difficult for this company to have the instincts necessary to to continue to be safe. But Weissman doesn't put all the blame on the company. He says regulators are also at fault. The notion was that these big companies care a lot about safety. In fact, nobody is likely to care more about safety than the companies themselves. And so what the commission wanted to do was to step back and let the company take care of its system. And with the understanding that if problems came up, Uh, well, the company would come and report those problems to the regulators. That light-touch approach meant the commission made rules and trusted the utilities to implement them. They didn't do enough checking to make sure safety improvements and inspections were actually getting done. I think what we found out now is that that trust that the company would just take care of safety was misplaced. And now uh, the regulators, I think, have a very different approach and a very different attitude about overseeing what, what these companies are doing. The CPUC has hired more people to inspect the work the utilities say they've done. And because of past disasters, a federal monitor is also watching PG&E. But there are still signs that PG&E's safety program has problems. The 2019 Kincaid fire was started by a PG&E line that the company told regulators was recently inspected. And so it raises the question of how are things getting missed when these are some of the areas where PG&E coming out of the 17 and 18 fires is saying that they're doing the best work that they're doing. So there's clearly still a long road ahead for PG&E. Making the system 100% fire safe may not be possible. More people are moving into fire-prone areas, and climate change has California facing hotter, drier summers. But PG&E can at least do what they say they're already doing better. Ultimately, we're the ones paying for their mistakes, with our money, our homes, and our lives. That was Bay Curious producer Katrina Schwartz. We reached out to PG&E, and they chose not to comment on large portions of this story. Big thanks to our newsroom colleagues, Suki Lewis, Marisa Lagos, Lisa Pickoff-White, and Lily Jamali, just a few of the journalists who regularly cover PG&E for KQED. 
You can find their in-depth reporting about wildfires, technology fixes, and the company's bankruptcy at kqed.org pge. We'll put a link in our show notes too. Thanks also to NPR's Lauren Summer, who shared her Sasha von Meyer interview with us. The podcast is taking a two-week break over the holidays, but we'll be back with a new episode starting January 7th. In the meantime, I encourage you to check out our show archive. There's four years worth of great episodes to choose from. Big Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. I'm Olivia Allen Price. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play March's trivia game? Every month, we'll read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a sweet prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is... This Bay Area high school holds the longest winning streak in high school football. They won 151 games in a row between 1992 and 2004. What is the name of the school? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country, on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.